Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I know that this one person has been following the healthcare negotiations so closely that it's affecting his health. Uh, Max Neeson is here in the Bloomberg 1130 studio uh, with us. And Max Neeson is a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist uh, covering healthcare, and he really has been following not only what we can expect from this health care bill, but some of the political machinations that went into uh, arriving at this. So first, uh, Max, I want to start with a line that you wrote in in your column yesterday where you were talking about how the entire medical establishment opposes the bill on moral and financial grounds. As a result, is this completely dead on arrival? And does, is it even a waste of time for us to focus on it? Uh, I think in its current form, it, it's definitely dead on arrival in the Senate, and, and they've basically said as much. Uh, rather than taking up the House version of the bill, um, you know, which would be something of an endorsement or at least a, a sign that they they think it's something they can pass or could potentially come law, they're going to go ahead and start from scratch and, and write their own uh, version of the legislation, and it's likely to be substantially different uh, on a number of points than that what we saw passed in the House. Max, can you just uh, uh, just just backtrack just for a second, because I want to understand this idea that the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, we've heard a lot of criticism about it. What would save that or what would improve it? I'm just curious to see if what we've got is not great. What would we need to make it slightly better? Um, I mean, some of it would, would require a time machine, but but as for what can be done now, um, a, a good start would be to uh, keep funding and for the administration to commit to keep funding uh, some cost-sharing payments to insurers and to low-income people that help both insurers deal with unexpected losses and uh, help lower-income people actually afford um, what are now some rising premiums. These were things that were built into the law and helped make it sustainable, but the fact that they've been kind of yanked around has made it very difficult for insurers to stick around. And that kind of creates a a bad cycle within individual markets like in Iowa right now. So, Max, one thing that you said earlier, you were talking about how the Senate's not just sort of uh, taking on the House bill in its own form and starting afresh is kind of a pretty, pretty big slam down, frankly, of the House plan by saying we're not even going to endorse it by taking it at all. Um, what changes do you expect the Senate to make? How will the bill differ uh, in the form that the Senate puts it out versus the House? So um, I, I think the first thing that they're going to want to wait to see is the Congressional Budget Office score of this bill, which will give them a sense of uh, where we are. The fact that the House didn't wait for that was um, pretty unusual. And when does that come out? Uh, we, we don't know. Okay. Probably, probably, <laughs> and probably next week. So we, we don't know how much the House version of the bill will cost, um, how much, how many people will be left uninsured, how much it will affect Medicaid, how it will affect the overall insurance market. Those are all still unknown. So that's 
the place they're going to start with what needs to be fixed. But in terms of the kind of specific points that I think uh, a new Senate bill will address or, or kind of differ from the House bill on, uh, it's going to be the degree of cuts to Medicaid and the degree of protection for those with pre-existing conditions, uh, both of which were cut substantially by the HCA. Well, you know, as Lisa uh, introduced this idea that no one in the medical or healthcare community was consulted or participated in the creation of what passed the House yesterday. Is that accurate? Um, I, I imagine that you know people made calls, but considering the speed at which this bill was put together in a matter of weeks as opposed to the more than a year than the Affordable Care Act with hearings, consultations, multiple scorings, this kind of you know, got put together quickly, then modified quickly. Uh, I don't think there was all that much input. And you can see that from the fact that, um, you know, several organizations of doctors, hospitals, um, you know, disease-focused organizations all kind of object to this bill. Well, that's where I wanted to go next, which is uh, what do you think is going to happen to hospitals if this bill were to prevail? It would be uh, something of a bloodbath, particularly for uh, hospitals in more rural areas and in areas that have a lot of Medicaid beneficiaries, uh, what would be likely to happen is that they would have a lot of people that would lose insurance coverage and would be back to kind of the bad old days of having to provide a lot more financial assistance and uncompensated care. Well, then why why not do, you know, it would take a page out of President Donald Trump's playbook, which at one point, I believe he threatened to let Obamacare, the ACA, continue and fail. At least that's what he, uh, I believe, said. Well, why not let the Democrats say, okay, you want this bill, let it go, and then you'll end up with these hospitals that are closing and people that realize that the bill's not so great? Um, You know, I I think it's just a question of what your viewpoint of what is appropriate or in a policy or kind of moral um, standpoint. You know, a lot of Democrats... That was diplomatic. <laughs> you know, a lot of, a lot of Democrats... Well, I mean, you understand yeah. my point. In other words, if this is the bill that the House Republicans want, then give it to them. Well, and then, okay, then you say, all right, these are I, the results. You, you know, they, they already... Health, though. This yeah. is a different kind of story. So you can't, in good conscience, if you think it's truly bad, can you, in good conscience, let this kind of thing go. Yeah, and and it kind of and they already have, you know, these house members voted for the bill. So they get to run ads and go back to their constituents with the fact that they voted to take away potentially your health care, um that of your family. Do you have a pre-existing condition? You know, look at look at what just happened. So it, they already have that benefit and will still I think want to fight against this actually becoming a law. Well, of course, this is going to be a conversation and a topic that is going to continue to keep on giving because, of course, as you just said, Max, um, the Senate is uh, pledging to write its own version of the bill. Thank you very much. Max Neeson, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist when it comes to healthcare, pharmaceuticals, and just about everything that's important. Much appreciated. As we were talking about earlier, unemployment, uh, the the unemployment rate in the U.S. fell to the lowest level since May 2007, according to numbers that came out this morning. Uh, This just shows that the job market continues to recover after the worst financial crisis uh, since the Great Recession. I want to bring in John Cochran, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University in California. John, uh, you're going to be attending a monetary policy conference 
the structural foundations of monetary policy uh, that is ongoing right now. And I want to sort of get your take on whether this good jobs report validates the Fed's unconventional methods of stimulating the economy after the 2008 crisis. Ah, uh, well, this is a good question of um, because or despite. Um, certainly, I think pretty much everyone agrees that the Fed did a, a great job in 2008 of not screwing up in the way that they really did in the Great Depression. And uh, Ben Bernanke said, we learned that lesson. We won't do it again. And they did. Now, is is the resulting period of quiet uh, due to its its uh, uh, big actions, or, or do we just naturally recover from um, the recession? Uh, that's the open question. That's why we have uh, conferences to debate things like this. Well, all right. So wh- which side are you going to come down on, and what do you expect your uh, your opponent or, or the uh, the contrary opinion to be? Oh, we don't, we don't have opponents. We have polite discussion. <laughs> uh, my own view is that uh, the QE operation uh, didn't do a whole lot. Um, it perhaps signaled to markets that the interest rates are going to be low for a long time, and that was useful. Uh, but then contrary-wise, that means that QE isn't doing a whole lot of harm and that you don't need to be in a big rush to uh, uh, wind down the balance sheet. That's one of the big items on discussion at our conference. Uh, is the big balance sheet lots of reserves? Is it, is it causing too much stimulus? Is it a problem? Does the Fed need to unwind it quickly? Or is it just kind of sitting out there and uh, not causing any particular problems and kind of nice to uh, keep the economy very liquid? John, in your conversations, how important is wage growth? <laughs> Well, wage growth uh, is what we're here for. Um, <laughs> All right, then. You're here for our raises. All right. So so tell us about why we're not seeing well, more of them. We're here for real uh, wage growth. Um, we, we want, uh, um, you know, just inflationary wage growth doesn't do anybody any good. But higher productivity, higher real wages, greater prosperity, and a job market that isn't just unemployment. Unemployment is people uh, looking for jobs, but there's still a big problem of people out there who aren't even looking anymore. The labor force participation rate is still low. The economy is growing uh, much slower than it should be, by at least my view and and uh, uh, just about everyone else. Uh, the question is whether that has to do with money or not. Uh, in the long run, uh, money can um, yeah, money can boost you a little bit for an afternoon, but there's no substitute for a diet and exercise if you want long-run growth. So is diet and exercise, in this case, some kind of fiscal stimulus, or is it something else? And you talk about, you know, we're here for, uh, you know, wage growth. That's That's the reason we're here. By that view, this jobs report wasn't that great. Um, well, we, we're here for uh, solid, long-run, real wage growth, which in the end, uh, and, and more people working at those higher wages, uh, in the end, that has to come from productivity growth. Um, you can fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, these things can help to get you out of a recession. But the foundations of long-run growth, uh, they, they have to come from greater productivity, which in the end is tax reform, regulatory reform, more innovation, more businesses, more competition, all that great stuff that uh, the Fed um, bless their hearts. Um, that's not their job. I'm going to give you a softball, John. Uh, why are so many people either not working, not studying for work, or even bothering to look for work? And uh, maybe you can reference Nicholas Everstadt's uh, column in commentary. Uh, sorry, I didn't happen to read that one. I've been this has to do with the, the he describes it. Well, you uh, on your blog, you say that, that one of the answers to why people are not looking for work, not studying for work is the opioid epidemic. And that uh, according to Alan Kruger, uh, about uh, seven million working age men are taking opioids, painkillers. <laughs> 
Yeah, um, it is, unfortunately, it's not a softball. Uh, it's not something that uh, there's one big stimulus that will solve the problem. There's a lot of middle America that is, right, taking opioid painkillers, um, stuck in some ways in communities that aren't working. They might have uh, uh, bought a house that now is underwater. They can't move to where the better jobs are. They might be stuck in some uh, government programs, which, although those help them when they're in, in trouble, now uh, they if they get a job, they lose all the benefits. So um, they don't want to that, that makes it much harder for them to move, get some training, get a job, move out. Uh, America is not as dynamic as it used to be. It used to be when things are in trouble, you get up, you move, you do something else, and that's just much harder these days for a lot of structural reasons, some of them having to do with government programs and some of them having to do with lots of big messes, Yeah, well, you know, but not monetary policy. But, but so, John, a lot of the issues that you're talking about that really are the next frontier for any recovery in the U.S. are not things, as you said, bless the Fed's hearts, not things that they can solve. So at a conference like the one that you're currently at, which you're talking about the structural foundations of monetary policy, I mean, are people basically just saying at this point, there's nothing left for them to do? Uh, well, I, I think that's important. Um, you know, the Fed would like to help, uh, and there's a big temptation for an institution uh, this large to take on jobs that it's ill-suited for. So repeating that message is important. I think a lot of what the discussion for monetary policy is, is, is look, it's it's late summer, and uh, late summer, uh, winter comes. There will be another recession sometime soon or sometime later. Who knows when it'll come? There will be another crisis. Something will blow up, and I think a lot of what's uh, what the important thinking is is for the Fed's job, which is demand, not supply, which is stimulus, which is fighting recessions, fighting crises. Uh, get get your powder dry. Get ready. Think about how you're going to so where the next one's coming from and how you're going to solve that one. Speak if you can about corporate tax cuts that have been proposed by the administration and whether that will lead to an increase in wages for workers. Oh. Um, We'll we'll see what comes out of there. Um, it should, in the end, uh, or, or uh, better prices for consumers. We got to remember every cent of corporate taxes does not paid by corporations. It's paid from higher prices to, that you and I pay, or uh, lower wages from workers. Um, some argument for lower profits, but in the end, profits go overseas if they don't get what they want. So uh, all that money will uh, eventually uh, mean higher, higher wages for workers or, or, or lower prices for consumers. That's, that's great stuff. Uh, I would hope they would also attack the complexity of the tax code, and a lot of tax accountants and lawyers and lobbyists can go drive for Uber and do something productive. How confident are you that the current administration can come up with a plan that will end up uh, helping productivity to increase? Oh, gosh. Don't ask me political questions. I'm an economist. <laughs> All right. Fine. I know it's much more fun, and I have my opinions like anyone else, but uh, let, let's stick to things I know something about. <laughs> All right. I want to thank you very much for joining us. He's, uh, are you still the grumpy economist? Uh, I'm, that's my official title, but as you may have noticed, that is not my personality. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> well, a great unless blog. We, unless we ask uh, about politics, in which case, there, there you show your, your grumpy cover colors. No, just my humility. All right. <laughs> well, I encourage everyone to check out your blog, The Grumpy Economist. Thanks very much. Uh, John Cochran is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, giving us his take on jobs and the economy.
We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com lens. I am so excited to bring in the next guest because he now works at Bloomberg Intelligence. Ira Jersey, uh, interest rate strategist and longtime uh, contact of mine. Ira, I'm so excited to have you. Uh, he uh, is coming to us on the phone uh, from Princeton. Ira, uh, you know, I want to touch base with you on a somewhat contrarian take that you unveiled today uh, in some Bloomberg Intelligence where you were saying, look, everyone's expecting the Fed to start unwinding the balance sheet, but it might not happen have the effect on yields that people think. Can you explain that? Yeah, so so I think the, uh, the conventional wisdom would tell you that when there's more supply of treasuries that um, and and effectively with the Federal Reserve running off its balance sheet, uh, that's what you're going to get um, is additional supply of treasuries. Normally, when that happens, people would say, "Oh, well, that means that treasury yields have to go higher, the price of bonds has to move lower, just because there's there's more supply into the market." But it's not obvious to me that that's what will happen because it it really all depends not on what the Fed does, but what the Treasury Department does. So how do they actually uh, put those extra bonds back in the market? Because they'll have to issue more bonds as these old bonds that the Federal Reserve holds matures. And um, and the Federal Reserve has quite a lot of room in the front end in order to increase issuance. So they can issue very short-term T-bills. They can issue two-year notes and three-year notes. And, and those things don't have a lot of interest rate risk. So therefore, the yields don't have to necessarily move higher just because the Fed lets its balance sheet start to run off. Well, I just wanted you to continue that thought, Ira, about running off the balance sheet, because you also write that the Federal Reserve could run off its Treasury holdings pretty quickly in 2018. What do you mean by that? Well, well, that's something interesting. So when the Federal Reserve was doing all of its buying five, uh, five to ten years ago, um, or you know now it's hard to believe that it's been almost ten years since they started quantitative easing, but you know we're all getting older. Um, the, the 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 fact is that 2018 is actually the most bonds that, uh, mature on their balance sheet next year, um, and that starts to tape uh, slow down uh, in 2019 and 2020. Um, so the 400 about 425 billion dollars runs off its portfolio. And if you recall, the the Federal Reserve was uh, was buying bonds on the order of 15 to 20 billion dollars a month. So the, actually next year you could have more bonds run off its balance sheet than when they actually started to buy uh, the bonds in their large-scale asset purchases. So this would be, you know, large-scale asset runoff, I guess. And that would have, well, and just sort of walk us through what the effect of that is if they're not going to reinvest those proceeds. Because right. that, I mean, I'm just thinking uh, um, aloud, I mean, as you said, it depends on whether the Treasury is going to replenish them. Uh, although the baseline scenario that everyone seems to have is that the, the Treasury is going to be forced to increase longer-term issuance in short order. 
Well, they're going to definitely need to increase um, longer-term issuance over time, primarily because the deficits are, are going to be moving higher. Um, so uh, imagine in a, a world today where the Federal Reserve hadn't done quantitative easing. Now, granted, the economic environment might be significantly different. But if, if the Federal Reserve didn't own these, then other investors would. And where would yields be um, if they didn't? It, it, believe it or not, uh, you know, my opinion is, is that it probably wouldn't be significantly higher than, than where yields are right now. Um, so, the, so the thing is, the, the fact that the Fed owns these instead of other people certainly has an impact, but, um, but what they own are very short-term securities right now, right? These are all maturities that mature within the next 18, 18 months to two years, right? So 500, almost 500 billion of them mature in the next couple of years. If the, Federal, if, if the Treasury Department then decides to issue these in, in T-bills and in two-year notes, it's not going to change the amount of interest rate risk that's in the world today. It'll be the exact same amount of interest rate risk that's in the world today. Now, if they do go out, and the Treasury Department has been talking about this, and in fact, in Wednesday's um, refunding statement, they mentioned this, um, and, and they seem keen on wanting to do this, they might issue a 50-year bond and potentially increase other maturities, but not necessarily because of the Fed, more because of the fact that you have a lot of baby boomers retiring and deficits are going to be higher over the next several years just um, on any kind of base case scenario for, uh, for, for the federal deficit. Ira, I'm glad you mentioned the deficit. How come that is not a dominant theme when it comes to uh, appropriations in Washington or even thoughts about interest rates? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I, I think, you know, folks in Washington now maybe are trying to think of, you know, how's ways to stimulate the economy. I mean, the economy's not growing at a, at a terrible pace. It's just not growing at this fast pace that we got used to in the 80s and 90s. So I, I think at this point, um, you know, they, they want some stimulative um, activities. And in order to do that, you kind of need to run some deficits. It, 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 just from a pure deficit standpoint, it's probably not the greatest time to be thinking about stimulative activities when you're going to get um, you know, uh, like I mentioned, you're going to have much higher um, costs for things like Social Security and Medicare just because of um, because of demographics, and that's going to swell the deficits anyway. Now, now at the, these low interest rates, the, the Treasury Department can issue a lot of bonds. There's still a lot of demand for Treasuries because there's a lot of risks going on around the world, um, but there probably is some tipping point somewhere. I don't think it's in, going to be in the next couple of years, but um, but there probably is a tipping point where you know those bond vigilantes that have been you know, hanging out in caves somewhere are going to start coming out and, and selling bonds in droves. Yeah, those bond vigilante caves, they really uh, have been I, I think hot. they've all retired at this point. Yeah. Quite <laughs> They're pretty hot real estate. Ira, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, I've seen this one idea floated. Why is the Treasury considering selling 50-year or 100-year Treasuries when they could just sell a whole bunch more of 30 years? Well, well, they they can, and I think that's that's the argument because one of the things, and, and I put out a note on this on Wednesday that you can find on the Bloomberg terminal, is the um, is the fact that there's not a lot more risk in the 30 year than there is in the 50 year. I think that the idea of the 50 year would be to to basically um, to issue bonds that are longer than most retirees will will live, quite frankly, and basically get over the Social Security hump that's really coming over the next uh, over the next several years. But in terms of interest rate exposure and in terms of pricing of, of these uh, of these bonds, it, it creates a different point on the curve. But uh, but you're absolutely right, Lisa. It doesn't have a lot more risk, and in fact, the amount of interest rate 
rate risk from uh, 10 years to 30 years more than doubles. But from 30 to 50 years, and this is, again, a little counterintuitive and very this has to do with bond math, but the risk only goes up by about 25% instead of, uh, like I said, 100% for the prior 20 years. So, so you're not adding a lot of risk. So the, that's one reason why the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee, these are dealers and investors and, and both buy-side, sell-side hedge funds, um, this is one of the reasons why they're skeptical if there will be consistent demand for the 50-year bond. Um, but at the same time, it seems like the Treasury Department seems pretty keen on, on uh, you know, testing it out and trying to issue some of these. Thank you very much. Ira Jersey is interest rate strategist for Bloomberg, talking about the outlook, of course, for interest rates. Thanks very much. Well, let's find out what the feeling is in Puerto Rico right now. We have Joe Mysack. He is our expert, our editor for Bloomberg Briefs Municipal Market. Joe, maybe just give us an update. What has happened so far this week in Puerto Rico? Title III, Pim. Title III, uh, sort of a, a, a version of bankruptcy that was set up just for the Commonwealth. And uh, now the creditors are going to have to slug it out. Right now, this is uh, they're using Title III to restructure GOs, but they're also general obligation general bonds. General obligation bonds, and they're also going to uh, file a Title III to restructure the COFINA bonds, uh, which are the sales tax backed bonds. You know, there's a, there's a lot of emotion tied to this issue, both on the side of people living in Puerto Rico, but also some of the creditors. And uh, in particular, I'm looking at the bond insurers who are on the hook to compensate investors for any losses on the bonds should uh, Puerto Rico write down the principal uh, substantially. And sure enough, Assured Guarantee, one of those insurers today had earnings. Uh, they actually reported better than expected earnings. since Their shares are up more than 5%. But the CEO said on a call with investors that they wanted an adult in the room to resolve Puerto Rico debt issues, which it didn't get with either the oversight board or the governor, uh, that the fiscal plan that the oversight board came up with is a, quote, insult. Title three is, quote, in no one's best interest. It will only mean long and costly litigation. So, uh, you know, Joe, given this backdrop, can you give a sense the, of sort of the mood of the people who you speak with? Are bond investors girding for much steeper losses than are already baked in? I think a lot of uh, bond investors who are st- who are still creditors at this point, because you know, let's face it, in the broader muni market, they don't really care. Um, but in the um, but the creditors, uh, sure, they're very uh, they're sort of stunned at this point. A lot of them are still in denial. Uh, I, I mean, at Assure, Dominic is uh, has always been a blunt speaker. Joe, uh, one of the things that's coming up in June, June 11th, is a plebiscite. It's a vote. And the uh, people in Puerto Rico are going to be able to vote on their political status. Now, the last time, back in 2012, they rejected continuing as a territory. And I believe it was something like 60% would vote or had voted in that plebiscite for statehood. The fact that Puerto Rico really is controlled by the federal government, is it likely that this vote will change anything? Uh, well, certainly not with the debt. And uh, the, you know, if I had to bet, I'd say they're probably going to vote for the status quo. 
Really? But, Even yeah. though you have uh, this uh, decline in the economic uh, fortunes of the territory? Because, I mean, Commonwealth doesn't really mean anything in the United I mean, it doesn't have any legal status, right? I mean, this is a territory, and as a result, it's really run, uh, overseen by the uh, the Congress. I think they'd, uh, they, you know, it, it strikes the balance between uh, independence and, uh, and the requirements of statehood. So I just... You know, that's my bet that they'll just go for the status quo. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about who's next. Does this set a bad precedent for, say, the Virgin Islands, which is another uh, territory of the U.S. and has been building debt and has been facing some of the similar issues uh, that have ravaged Puerto Rico. So uh, we were talking offline, Joe, that, that the Virgin Islands has about $2 billion of debt compared to $74 billion uh, at Puerto Rico. So this is not exactly an apples to apples comparison. But could the Virgin Islands end up taking a similar route to Puerto Rico? Oh, sure. And, and again, because it's, you know, sort of... Um how do you put it? An impoverished Caribbean mini nation, I guess, or state. Uh, and, you know, the, the things that are in operation in Puerto Rico are sort of in operation in the Virgin Islands, but in a very, very smaller way. Well, do you think that there is a precedent that's set for, say, bondholders uh, for Illinois or New Jersey or other ravaged states that might not fall under the same Title Three provision? Contagion. That's what you're talking about. Yes, I'm talking contagion. Are we going to see contagion? I don't see contagion just because uh, these uh, uh, states that you mentioned really have to have regular access to the bond market, and there's still a lot of things they could do. On the other hand, this doesn't uh, excuse the uh, the fact that they have a lot of difficulties. You know, when you say New Jersey and Illinois, Chicago public schools, these are places with very, uh, you know, they have a lot of distress there. But certainly I don't see any contagion spreading to states. States have a lot of power and they have a lot of taxing power in particular. Well, then having said that, I'm wondering why wouldn't Puerto Rico become a state? I mean, right now it doesn't seem to be working in its present situation of being a territory. Why not change the status and fix this? Um, I think right now you're, you're sort of at the end of the line and that, uh, right now, this is probably how it's going to work going forward. I know, uh, attaining statehood wouldn't change anything for them right now. Just when you were talking earlier, real quick, can you give us a sense of who the creditors really are at this point? I mean, have the mutual funds and the mom and pop investors pretty much all gone away? Well, yeah, because uh, you know Puerto Rico was downgraded several years ago. So the mom and the typical mom and pop investor that is off island, on the island there are still small investors who own uh, Puerto Rico paper. But uh, uh, you know, right now you have big hedge funds. You still have you know some big mutual funds. Um, so it's really it's it's an institutional thing right now. Well, there's still some individuals who own Puerto Rico paper, sure. But but for the most part, it is institution versus Puerto Rico. Joe Mysack, editor for Bloomberg Brief, focusing on the municipal market. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Truly a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.